What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Welcome back, podcast friends. I am so excited to be back with you this week with a really amazing guest. Dr. Lawrence Polevsky is with us today, and we had a really great conversation. This episode, although a little bit longer than most, is jam-packed with great information and an open door to discussion and curiosity. And that's what I want to impart the most. Dr. Polevsky is a New York State licensed pediatrician who utilizes a holistic approach to children's wellness and illness. Dr. Polevsky received his medical degree from the NYU School of Medicine in 1987, completed a three-year pediatric residency at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City in 1990, and served as a pediatric fellow in the Ambulatory Care Outpatient Department at Bellevue Hospital from 1990 to 1991. Since 91, his clinical experience includes working in pediatric emergency and intensive care medicine, inpatient and outpatient pediatric medicine, neonatal intensive care medicine, newborn and delivery room medicine, and conventional holistic and integrative pediatric private practice. Dr. Polevsky is a diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine and past president of the American Holistic Medical Association. Dr. Polevsky has an amazing resume, as you just heard. He's also an amazing person, very well-spoken, very open to both sides of the current discussion over COVID-19 and vaccination. And I have really enjoyed my time with him in learning what he now knows from his research and just opening the door to questions and opening the door to curiosity and revisiting what science has always been meant to be, which is asking questions, doing studies to prove or deny it, and asking more questions. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Although I know this may seem controversial to some, in my opinion, it's really, again, just the conversation that we need to have more of. Welcome, Dr. Polevsky. I am so honored and excited to have Dr. Larry Polevsky with me today. I have followed his work. I think he's an amazing person and professional in his field and outside of his field. He's just an amazing person. And I'm just really thrilled to bring him here to you all today. Thank you for being with, here with us, Dr. Polevsky. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So I actually always start all my podcasts off with the question, what does true wellness mean to you? So I would love to just get your thoughts on that. So wellness is a dynamic of uh, health and symptoms. So we think that we're well if we're not having symptoms. But in fact, there's always the potential for symptoms happening underneath if only we were paying attention. 
And so wellness requires us to be conscious of what we're eating, what we're breathing, what we're putting on our skin, what we're injecting into our bodies, what other things are putting in our mouth, what we're allowing into our nervous system and what we're injecting into the body. And so those contributing factors will all bring a certain level of chemistry to our systems. And our chemistry has to manage it, discern it, purify, get rid of the impurities, and then get rid of it. And so if we're putting more of those impurities in, then our bodies have the capacity to get rid of it. We're going to develop symptoms, but not as a bad thing, but as an opportunity for us to be more conscious of where we're overloading the system and needing to stop putting as much in and stop overloading as much as we're overloading and opening up the floodgates to allow more of the wastes to make their way out. That's on a body level, that's on a mind level, and that's on a spirit level. On the body level, are we conscious of what we're bringing into our body in the physical world? On the mind level, are we conscious of what we're bringing into our minds? And on the spirit world, are we conscious of, this, of the material that's rising up in us, that's trying to speak to us, that's trying to knock on our doors, that's trying to give us information, our intuition, our higher selves, that are trying to let us know what's in our best interest? Are we paying attention to that? And every level needs to be addressed if we're gonna look at our overall wellness. Mm, love that. And I love just the central theme of being conscious and the central theme of symptoms of being a message to us and being conscious of what that means. So thank you so much for sharing that. All right, well, let's just start with those who don't know you as well. And I know that you probably have to speak out your bio and your background, you know, endless times a day and week, but I would appreciate uh, a synopsis of your sort of entry into an interest in the medical field and then your pivot into a more holistic approach. Okay. So first of all, I never wanted to be a doctor. So it was not something that was in me. Oh my God, I want to be a doctor. I liked my pediatrician, but I never had this passion. Um, I went to NYU School of Medicine, graduated in 1987 did a three-year pediatric residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York from 87 to 90. And then for one year, I did a pediatric outpatient ambulatory care fellowship at Bellevue Hospital as part of NYU School of Medicine. And so that takes us to 1991, eight years residency fellowship in medical school. And then for the next nine years, I did four years in a pediatric emergency room in the Bronx I covered uh, private practice on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on weekends for two and a half years. I spent five years at another hospital in New York City where I ran the pediatric intensive care unit. I covered the neonatal intensive care unit. I went to high risk deliveries to take care of babies who are in distress. I uh, did rounds on the wards in the inpatient uh, pediatric ward with residents and medical students. I taught residents and medical students. I had a clinic and I also covered the emergency room in that hospital. So this is from 1991 to 2000. And so since 2000, 
Uh, in 2000, I went to the Beth Israel Center for Health and Healing, which was one of the first of its kind integrative medical centers. Um, I was the pediatrician there in practice and I stayed there for two and a half years. I left in October of 02, took a couple of years off. And then in February of 05, I started working in my current job for the last 16 and a half years at the Northport Wellness Center, where I have a pediatric practice in holistic integrative pediatric medicine. Yeah, so long, um, very, well, very interesting first that you were not interested in medicine and you're still in it. So it didn't push you away. You found sort of your, your way in it and the way in which you want to practice. And so you've found your joy in the work that you do, which I think is fantastic. Cause I, I definitely don't like to see people leave a field where they really could make an impact and they could find their way. So I love that you did. Uh, but I would love to know sort of what you found from, you've had plenty of experience in the traditional Western approach. And now you definitely approach it from a different, standpoint. So I would love to know sort of why and how you pivoted and what that looks like from a practical standpoint of how you practice now and how maybe you would have practiced or did right. practice then. So I loved the emergencies. I loved the newborn emergencies, the, the intensive care, the ER emergencies. I had lots of great skill with my hands. You know, I was intubating 500 gram babies, putting IVs in their veins uh, you know, I was doing arterial sticks and, and umbilical cord uh, catheters and, uh, you know, stitching and intubating. It was, I loved doing that. Um, but over time, I started to realize, especially early on in the emergency room, that there were things that I was seeing that didn't make sense to what I was taught I sh that should make sense. And I realized that all these kids were coming back day in and day out, week in and week out with the same illnesses that they started with when I saw them weeks or months before. And I, I started to see a pattern. I couldn't help them other than, well, here's another medicine. Yeah, here's another medicine. Here's another medicine. And so I started to ask the question, do I have any way to help them so that they don't keep getting sick? And it was one of these aha moments of, no, I wasn't taught any of that. Not when I was in medical school, not when I was in residency. So there was a nurse in the emergency room who was studying acupuncture. And I was asking her all these questions because I didn't know anything about Chinese medicine or acupuncture. She said, I need you to go see my friend. So about two years into being in the emergency room, I went to see her friend who was an acupuncturist. And I just started getting treatment. And I wanted to know. I kept asking lots of questions. And then she referred me to a chiropractor who eventually worked with us at the Beth Israel Center for Health and Healing. And I started asking her questions. And then I started realizing there was a whole field of medicine that was way beyond anything that I was taught in medical school residency. And I wasn't the kind of person who said, ah, that's a bunch of hooey. None of that stuff makes sense. You guys are nuts. That's a crock of you know what. <laughs> I was curious. So I asked questions. And the chiropractor made this statement to me, the body has the innate capacity to heal. It's like, what? <laughs> what? And so it just got me questioning. And, and somewhere along the line, I started learning about nutrition. I started learning about partially hydrogenated oils. And I did an experiment. I took all the partially hydrogenated oils out of my diet. 
I added fresh extra virgin olive oil. I didn't change anything else. I lost five pounds. It's like, okay, what's this? <laughs> so I, I started learning more about nutrition. Then I met up with an acupuncturist who saw kids and I just, I, I went to his office and I watched him and I started meeting with him. I went to his lectures. I just started feeding myself. And then I started learning about homeopathy. It's like, whoa, what in the world is that? Because it's so different from Western medicine. And I thought it was fascinating, especially when I saw my colleagues who were using it and it was working. And then I saw parents who were using it and it was working. And I was like, okay, I, I, I gotta know more here. And so the, the, the underlying pattern for me was, I was able to say, I don't know what I don't know and I wanna find out. And that is what separated me from the majority of my colleagues in medicine. Because when I was covering the neonatal ICU and I saw these kids who were really not doing well in the, in the NICU, you know, they were premature, their lung, lungs weren't getting better. And I went over to one mother one day who had twins, like 30, 31 weeks. And I don't remember the boy or the girl who died, but one of them died. I think it was the girl, which is rare because the boys usually do worse than the girls. And I said to her, look, I know you're mourning. I, I know this is tough. But she was nursing and they were giving the baby who, was li who lived the breast milk through the uh, tube in the mouth. And I said, your baby is now at 41% oxygen. He's got tubes in the nose, CPAP. And his lungs are just not going anywhere. He's just lingering. It's not improving. He said, I know you're breastfeeding and I know this is tough. You just lost your daughter. I'd like you to go home and get fish oil. And I want you to take two grams to four grams of DHA per day, along with your other diet. Within three days of giving this kid that milk, his oxygen went down to 29%. And then he cruised and just, boom, came off CPAP and oxygen and did really well. And so when you look at the nutrition that's given to newborns in the NICU, it's all omega-6 fats, intralipids. There's no balance of omega-3 fats in there. And so when I started learning about hydrogenated oils, omega-6, omega-3, the balance, inflammation, anti-inflammation, sugar, all I did was say to the mother, take some grams of DHA and boom. So the kid's probably about 23 or 24 now, assuming the kid's still alive from any other reason. And it just, it, I was just willing to say, I don't know what I don't know. And let me, let me still investigate. And, and I'm still like that. Uh, six decades later from my birth, I'm still asking the questions. I'm still willing to say, huh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I need to learn more. 
It's not often. First of all, that's amazing. Amazing that that mother had you in her life and as her medical team, um, also amazing for the child who you helped and that you were willing to be open to something that might have been unconventional or maybe not uh, not agreed upon by other people in, who might be your colleagues. But um, just really, it's very rare. And you know this from being in the field and I know this from, you know, being in the medical field and my husband being a physician and, um, and just, you know, being around the field that saying, I don't know, is not necessarily part of the culture that's a- agreed upon in school. And um, even in pharmacy, I don't know is not a thing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we might go find it out, but we probably won't admit that we don't know. And um, we'll probably try to f- figure it out as we're talking, <laughs> um, which actually brings me, I actually pulled up this it's, it's an article, it's called The Value of Asking Questions. Ronald Bale out of UCF, UCSF wrote it back in like 2013, but it says, science begins by asking questions as a form of intellectual exploration. Young children are full of questions spawned by true curiosity rather than a desire to impress. But over the course of their education, students and adults ask fewer questions and more passively accept facts as the way things are. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are, and we'll, we'll move into to the elephant in the room in, in just a minute, but what your thoughts are on sort of the culture of medical education, residency training, and, you know, I have thoughts on the pharmacy part because I was very well versed on that, um, but what are your thoughts on how this all be- began and where we're going with it? Is it going to get any better? I want to make one statement about questions because I love it when kids ask questions. And if I had a hundred parents in a room 101 of them would answer the kid's question. You get my my sarcasm here. (laughs) But I would never answer the kid's question. Mm. Here's why. Kids ask questions because of their curiosity. But more importantly, kids ask questions to connect. That's their true reason for asking the question. And so... I ask the question back to the kid and I'll say, I don't know, what do you think? And here's why. Because I don't wanna download my world into the kid. I want to see the world through the kid's eyes. And I wanna encourage the kid to discover the world through his or her eyes. So when a three and a half year old, oh, maybe 15 years ago, said to me, Dr. Larry, what's this? And I said, I don't know, what do you think it is? And he said, a stethoscope. (laughs) It was clear to me that he knew, but he just wanted to engage me and relate to me. And when another kid said to me, Dr. Larry, what's this? I said, I don't know, what do you think it is? And he said, a heart listener. (laughs) It's like, great, right? So you get to see the creativity. Mm -hmm. And we've lost that ability to engage in curiosity and question. And so I I have a motto that the worst question is the one never asked. And so I remember when I started medical school in 1983, one of the first things they taught us was the scientific method. And how do you do the scientific method? you, you see a pattern or you see an observation of events. And based on that pattern or observation of events, you ask a question. And then you go ahead and design a study to actually see what the answer to that question is. 
based on some suspicion or some curiosity about what you think might be related to why those patterns are happening. And then you design the study in a way that's unbiased. You design it in such a way that the results will speak for themselves and that you have to be willing. This was the most important thing that I learned about the scientific method. You have to be willing to receive the answer, even if it's the answer that you were not expecting and didn't like, mm -hmm. because that's science. And then you have to be able to write up the, the results, come to your conclusions and have a discussion. And then you have to ask another question based on that study. And so the scientific method continues to cycle because one question begets 10, begets 100, and you keep repeating it, right? Because just because you got answers in that study doesn't mean that if you do the study again, you're going to get the same answers. So you have to not only repeat the study, but then you have to develop other questions based on that study. And that's the way I was taught in medical school. That was 1983 to 1987. And then in residency and fellowship to 91. Somewhere in the mid to mid 90s, that started to get pushed out. And there was no longer usage of the scientific method. And now it was protocol. It was, I'm gonna dump this information in you and damn you if you have a gag reflex because you better not. <laughs> and so that's where we are today. To ask a question is actually close to being a crime mm -hmm. or close to being heresy because thou shalt not ask is the 11th commandment. And that's because we are at a place of belief not at a place of thinking, discussion, debate, dialogue, and discrepancy, where you can go back and forth and try to work out a situation. And I'll remember, I have a colleague who's in a pediatric integrative physician, and I had a long conversation with him and explained to him why the illness of COVID-19 was not a respiratory illness and why there was a curiosity that you had a respiratory virus that you're calling severe acute respiratory syndrome as the disease state of COVID, saying that it's caused by a respiratory virus when the initial real pathology of the disease is a blood disorder. Mm -hmm. It's a blood disorder, it's a hypoxic disorder, and it's a blood clotting disorder that manifests with neurological problems, cardiac problems, hematological problems, renal problems, hepatic problems, genitourinary problems. And I went through this whole explanation, having been an intensive care physician and saying when people are hypoxic without any ventilatory problems, you're dealing with a blood disorder versus when someone is hypoxic and having ventilatory problems, meaning they can't exchange carbon dioxide either. And I went through this whole scientific explanation, clinical explanation, 
And he said to me, oh, Larry, that's over the head of most physicians. They're not going to buy into that. Wow. And I thought, wow, we are at a loss. Like almost to say, don't bother really discussing it because we're just happy accepting that this is a virus and this is a severe acute respiratory syndrome and this is, that's what it is. And I thought, wow, we've lost the medical mm -hmm. field. Because he, he's an integrative pediatrician. I mean, he's, he's on the cutting edge of treating kids. Yeah. Wow. That's what comes to mind for me too. So, well, we're, we're just going to go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room then since we've transitioned. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to assure the listeners that this is intended, and I just, I talked to Dr. Pulowski beforehand, and this is intended to fill in the gray space that I think that we just have not had enough of, which is bringing both sides together and having an open conversation. Now, I realize I don't have a panel here of multiple people on multiple sides, but um, the, the intention here is for us to do just as Dr. Pulowski said, which is start to ask the questions and start to just be curious. And that's kind of how I started out with, you know, when the, when the vaccine, um, which we'll talk about whether or not that's a, that's correct um, word utilization and uh, identification. But when it became available as a pharmacist, I hold sort of a, a general, you know, paradigm of it, when, a, when a new medication comes out, I'm, I'm a watch and waiter. If somebody asks me, should I, you know, get this brand new medication that just got approved, um, you know, I, I usually say, you know, if it's, if it's a life altering thing, it's a different situation, but if there are other options, you know, let's watch and wait, let's see what happens with post-marketing surveillance for six, 12 months, more months. Um, and so that was my take on it at first is, well, it's new technology. So let's, let's give it some time. I'm not, I'm not super interested in jumping right into this quite yet. And that's, that's how I jumped in is just, let's look and, and see what's going on and, and study the studies that come out. And that was an, an approved thought process right out of the gate and it has now become not so. Now it has become, we're not allowed to have any other discussion other than go get the vaccine. And so let's start out with, you know, Oprah, I, I'm a Oprah follower and she has a book that says it's called What I Know For Sure. So tell us listeners and me what you know for sure based on what you have studied and researched and know about this injection. Okay, so I'm gonna go back to medical school and residency. Yes. All right. What's the definition of a vaccine? What is a vaccine supposed to do? So a vaccine is supposed to give you an antibody production against a virus or bacteria. That's number one. Number two, that, vac that injection is supposed to protect you from getting the disease from that bacterium or virus. Now that has to mean that that antibody produced is going to protect you. And so if we look into the literature, we see that just because you produce an antibody doesn't mean you're automatically protected. So in order for a vaccine to work, it has to have both those two. It has to produce an antibody and it has to protect you from the disease because that antibody is found to be protective. 
because not every antibody produced will protect you. And not everybody who gets the injection will produce an antibody in the first place, all right? So those criteria have to be met. Number three, an injection must demonstrate that it will decrease severe symptoms of the illness, it'll decrease hospitalizations, and it will decrease the incidence of death from whatever virus or bacteria we're talking about. Number four, that injection must make it so that you no longer carry the germ in your body. And number five, that injection has to demonstrate that you cannot transmit the germ from one person to the next because you're no longer carrying it. All right. So let's fast forward to SARS-CoV-2. These injections, number one, are using a technology that's never ever been used before in the history of vaccine manufacturing and in the history of reducing infectious diseases in humanity. So we have no track record of these technologies as to whether or not it is a, an effective intervention to reduce infectious disease. So that's really number six, right? Number six is it has to show you that it's gonna, you know, it's gonna stop infectious disease. This technology has never been used before. So we have no history. And yet we just ran for it, even though there's no history. It's an experiment. We automatically assume that because the authorities are manufacturing it, they did the proper testing. Like if you, if you looked at a, a box of these injections and opened up the package insert, it's blank, right? There's nothing in it. So you don't even know what's in it, but you're automatically described to, you know, saying to yourself, this is safe because they said so. If you look at the slide or the list of side effects that these manufacturers gave to the FDA in the fall of 2020 as to what conditions they were seeing as adverse events from the people who got the shot in the trials, we're seeing it now. We're seeing autoimmunity, we're seeing uh, myocarditis, we're seeing death, we're seeing infertility, we're seeing miscarriages, we're seeing strokes, we're seeing blood clotting, we're seeing thromboses, we're seeing neurological problems, we're seeing it all. But those of us who were able to get our hands on what chemicals might be in there, so they say, not one of those chemicals has ever been tested for safety in humans before. And during the trials, they didn't test the chemicals for safety at all, but these are known toxins. Lipid nanoparticles, if you open up the literature, it says in the literature, lipid nanoparticles have been used before in vaccinations and been known to show complications of brain, lung, heart, 
kidney, liver, genital urinary system dysfunction and impairment. And there are lipid nanoparticles in these shots. And then information comes out about this chemical called SM102, which may be a lipid nanoparticle. It's not really clear what it is. Not to be used in, in, in human exposure, shown to be causing infertility and cancer in people. And yet what doctors around the country are reporting is increased tumor rates in the populations in their practices who are getting the shot. I'm sure that's anecdotal to most people, but you have to believe that this is possible first because all you have to do is look at the list of conditions that the manufacturer sent to the FDA and you'll see that in there as well. But let's go back to the shot. What is the shot meant to do? It's meant to give you the genetic material of the spike protein. This is what they tell us. So I'm just going on what they tell us. It's meant to give us the genetic material of the spike protein to signal our bodies to manufacture more of it. Now, so what we're told is that the spike protein is the factor in the SARS-CoV-2 virus that's causing all of the pathology of COVID-19 illness. The brain complications, the lung complications, the hematological complications, thromboses, clotting, liver problems, kidney problems, male and female reproductive problems, all because of the effects of the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The spike protein on the virus is causing the damage that's bringing on the symptoms of COVID-19. So now you have injections that are asking your body to manufacture spike protein. You're gonna get COVID. You're going to get COVID. All these people who are getting the injection, who got the, got the, are getting COVID. And no one is stopping to say, well, that makes sense. We're giving them the poison that created spike, that created COVID-19 in the first place. But we're told that the spike protein is the part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we're gonna give you the spike protein capa the capacity to manufacture spike protein so that you can then manufacture an antibody against it. Okay, now, question. Is the genetic makeup of that spike protein specific only to the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Or does it cross-react with any other genetic materials consistent with human tissue? Because if you're going to produce an antibody against a spike protein, you better make sure that the genetic material of that spike protein that you're manufacturing can't be duplicated elsewhere in the body. Otherwise, you're going to attack the body with your own antibodies. And so several studies have been done, which actually demonstrate that the genetic material of the spike protein is not specific to just a SARS-CoV-2 virus. In fact, there are dozens of human tissue 
that cross-react with the genetic material of the spike protein that makes the antibody attack the body, including brain, lung, heart, mitochondria. And so you'll see all these experts say, oh, the body doesn't keep producing spike protein because the mRNA shuts off. Where's the study? Where's the study showing that you actually examined the cellular mechanisms that took in the messenger RNA and evaluated how much is produced, how long it's produced, and what happens to it once it's produced? Where's the study that actually looks at how much antibody is produced, where does that antibody go? What else does that antibody attack? Nothing, Claudia. There are no studies, but there are opinions. There are opinions where people say, oh, but the messenger RNA doesn't keep producing. No study, that's an opinion. And so if the SARS-CoV-2 virus has a spike protein that is the defining feature of what makes the pathology in COVID-19. And the Salk Institute came out with a study demonstrating that you could actually just take the spike protein and cause the symptoms of COVID-19 without the presence of a coronavirus. then in fact, this injection is not a vaccine because you're not dealing with a virus that's causing the problem. You're dealing with a spike protein that's causing the problem. And so you're not getting an antibody potentially against a virus. You're getting an antibody against the spike protein, which may have nothing to do with a virus which means you're not gonna develop antibody immunity against a virus. You're gonna get potentially antibody immunity against a spike protein and who knows what else. You're not gonna be protected against any viral illness because the spike protein is not specific to a virus. It actually has nothing to do with the virus because the virus is irrelevant in causing the disease and you may cross react with dozens of tissues in the body. They told you when the injection came out, this injection may not protect you against SARS-CoV-2 virus infection. They told it to you, right? They told you, we don't know if you'll develop antibody immunity against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We don't know if you'll be protected from getting the virus. And yet the game of telephone has changed such that it's the mantra of everybody. It's, it has to protect you against the virus, even though this injection has nothing to do with the virus because the spike protein is not specific to a virus. Then they tell you that they never checked 
as an endpoint, rates of hospitalizations, rates of severe illness, or incidence of deaths. So you have no idea if this injection is going to help you lower hospitalizations, decrease severe symptoms, or decrease deaths. But they did say it may reduce your symptoms if you got the illness. May. And then they said, very early on, we do not know if this injection will stop the transmission of the virus from one person to the next. Well, but this isn't about a virus, so there's nothing transmitting. So this injection isn't a vaccine. It doesn't fit any of the criteria. And then all the other safety issues and other scientific issues on top of it should make you really step back and say, what are we doing? Now, in our society, there are three critical statements that are accepted as fact without any question. Vaccines are safe, vaccine injury is rare, and unvaccinated people are the harborers of germs that no one else carries if they've been vaccinated because the vaccine stops those who've been vaccinated from harboring the germ or transmitting it. If we stick to those three statements, we are in trouble because there's good scientific proof that not one of them is correct and not one of them is truthful. So what we're seeing in the number of deaths and the number of strokes, heart attacks, autoimmunity, miscarriages, infertility, irregular menses, thrombosis, thrombocytopenia, erectile dysfunction, testicular pain, fevers of unknown origin. In people who are getting the shot and those around them who are exposed to them who haven't gotten the shot. And what you have in our country is people who are dying left and right within 24 to 48 hours of this shot and sometimes within a week or two, and doctors and nurses are not even asking if the patient got the COVID injection because it is impossible to acknowledge that this injection could be doing this, even though there's no safety data, we don't know what's in it, we know that the chemicals have never been tested that we do know of. And we know that the manufacturers of these injections are completely immune to any liability, as are the doctors and as are our government officials, as per the PREP Act. And so we're watching the slow demise of people who are running for an injection that's not going to do anything to them in regards to protecting them against a, a, a viral infection because the spike protein isn't specific to any virus. And when you dig deeper, you find that the spike protein, supposedly, again, based on what they say, does not exist in nature anywhere. 
And then when you dig even deeper, you find out that it is actually a synthesized piece of genetic material that's true purpose is a bioweapon. And that our government was involved in research on doing gain of function research on coronavirus. And if you're gonna do gain of function research on a virus, no less coronavirus specifically, how ironic or how coincidental, you know a priori from the start that your virus is benign. It can't hurt you, it can't make you sick, and if it does, it's very benign. But when you do gain of function research on a virus, you are with intention manipulating the microorganism to fulfill the intention of making it virulent, potent, or even deadly. And so if you can actually fathom that this spike protein is man-made, because it is, it's synthesized, <clears throat> and you can fathom that you can't, you don't need a virus to actually get sick from the spike protein, then you know that the virus is not what's making you sick. And then you have to step back and realize that this is something much more nefarious. And I'll end this piece I know I've been long-winded on this note. The human body has over 100 trillion bacteria lining the nose to lungs, mouth to anus, skin, and re women's reproductive system. And within those bacteria, as well as inside the cellular DNA of our cells, we have close to 400 trillion pieces of genetic material that make up viruses. We are made to believe that the only way you can catch a virus is if someone who's sick gives it to you. And yet our body has close to maybe 400 trillion viruses, which are circulating, manufactured, extinguished, expelled from the cells and coming out of our bacteria that are lining our bodies. And so if we're always viraling, what's different about this? Because viruses don't behave this way. They actually participate in the cellular mechanisms to keep our cells in significant homeostasis. And they're not necessarily the cause of disease the way we think they are. And so if you do a nasal swab looking for a virus, you can never determine whether any genetic material of a virus in your nose is endogenous to your body or something you breathed in from the outside, making it exogenous. And so we are at the precipice of really, really seriously damaged information that requires much more critical thinking and much more usage of fact and science, not scientism, that we're seeing in our lives today.
So much really great, important information. I know a lot of the listeners might actually want to go back and listen, or at this point, they may have have turned this off. But for those who are still with us, um, I think it's really important to point out that a lot of what you you just mentioned may be new to, to you if you're listening. And um, you said a few things, one of which is if you can fathom. And I think the important point here is, can you fathom, can you open your mind to the fact that maybe you don't know all of the information because it hasn't been given to us and that we there may be more to the story as Dr. Polevsky is alluding to. And so we're going to go through a little kind of Q&A in a second, but I would love to just briefly get your thoughts on the psychology behind this unwillingness or inability to have an open conversation and to be open to the other side. What What's sort of, it's so polarized and it's certainly not the only example of polarization in our history, but this is certainly on the forefront right now. And it's, it's so polarizing that this gray area can't be accessed. So what's your, what are your thoughts on the, the psychology behind that? So there's no doubt that the overriding theme of the last year and a half is fear. No doubt. It's shoveled, tunneled, we're pummeled with it, right? It's just constant fear. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. The majority of the public was made to believe that this disease was deadly, that people were dying left and right. Even though we had videos of hospitals that were empty in certain parts of the country, even though we had evidence of videos of ERs that were empty, even though we had evidence of major news sources utilizing footage from Italy to prove that our hospitals were busy. We saw the government tell hospitals and their doctors to label a COVID death for just about anything that came into the emergency room, died in the ER, or died in the ICU. So people who had cancer in hospice were labeled COVID. People who died of motorcycle accidents, car accidents, labeled as COVID in the ER. People who died of heart attacks, strokes, labeled as COVID in the ER or in the ICU. So we have no idea how many people really died of COVID, but we know that hospitals were given financial incentives to put COVID down as the diagnosis cause of death. Even if the patients were dying of a terminal illness or died from something completely unrelated to any of the symptoms consistent with COVID. But the media kept telling us, look at how many people are dying. And so fear was pummeled in. Meanwhile, you had doctors who were successfully treating their patients to reduce their symptoms, keep them out of the hospital, and reduce the death rates in their communities. And every doctor who had this experience was told to shut up. Some were fired, some were threatened, some were removed. Now, that's concerning because under the Emergency Use Authorization Act, 
there's no way to use an experimental intervention unless you can prove that there's no effective treatment or prevention. And so every effort was made to quiet those physicians in this country and around the world who had successful clinical experience treating the people who came down with the symptoms of COVID-19. And what's ironic is that Anthony Fauci published a study in 2005 showing that hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment for SARS-CoV-1. And so that's how the doctors of today knew to go to hydroxychloroquine. Now, why would an antiparasitic drug effectively treat what's considered a virus should make you question what's really going on with the illness that people are having. Nonetheless, there was a very large theme of fear, especially when we introduced the PCR test, which was an ineffective, non-confirmed, and lame test that showed absolutely no evidence of a viral infection, but was used to tell the public, look how many cases of SARS-CoV-2 there are. Because the PCR test wasn't developed, can't diagnose, and isn't capable of telling you whether there's a viral disease or a viral infection. And if you dig deeper, you find that the labs that were doing the tests were actually told to change the cycle thresholds of the PCR test to a higher number, which created probably a 97% false positive rate. And I know in medicine that when you develop a test to evaluate something, you've got to study it to see what degrees of false negatives there are, what degrees of false positives there are, and then you have to develop a test secondarily to confirm it. And most often when you're making a diagnosis of a disease, it's usually based on the patient's clinical presentation, not based on a swab of the nose. And so you had all these people who had no symptoms, who were all of a sudden diseased based on a test that wasn't valid, that was being used as valid, based on a cycle threshold that was purposely elevated which was then reduced once people started having the shot to make it look like now they were negative. And then the creation of a story that all these people were sick, diseased, transmitting something and dying. And so all of that to say fear. And when you are afraid, you essentially bombard the hindbrain of your body with adrenaline and blood and by increasing your fight or flight response, you physiologically shut off your forebrain. And your forebrain, your frontal cortex, is your brain of thinking, reasoning, analyzing, explaining, concluding, focusing, paying attention, developing awareness and consciousness. And so as long as you keep people in the fear you're going to stop 
forebrain activity. And that's what's happened. So that's why we are seeing this difficulty in having a conversation because people are certain and afraid. And to question the authority would actually put the reflection back on themselves of responsibility and accountability. And if they truly looked at what might be going on, they'd have to come to a conclusion that maybe they're being lied to. And that if they're being lied to, they are embarrassed and duped. And then to say, what in God's name did I do to myself? What in God's name did I do to my family? How could I have not known? How could I have been so unaware? And so when you come from a place where your only set of information is based on your trust of an authority, and no matter what they shove down your throat, you don't have a gag reflex, you're in trouble. Because your starting place, Claudia, is hashtag they would never do anything to harm us, which means I'm devoted to the worship of my false God. And if you really look at history, the companies that are giving us these injections have been fined trillions of dollars for corruption. Now, Moderna is a brand new company. Um, but the other companies, Pfizer and J&J, &J, AstraZeneca, trillions of dollars in fines for corruption. Now, what makes you think that they're all of a sudden altruistic and not doing anything to hurt you? And so it's this blind faith. It's this combination of fear and absolute devotion to the authority because they're going to protect us. They're going to save us. They're going to make it better and a complete abdication of your own persona as a thinking, feeling, critically addressing human being. And it's a grand design. I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's working to the advantage of those who want to see people die and people suffer because there's nothing in this shot that resembles anything related to protecting anybody against a viral infection. I really appreciate that sort of psychological, because I, I do think the polarization is is such that you can't even see beyond it. And so to just break it down, I think people can definitely resonate with the fear mongering for sure. And, and um, just kind of honor and, and vigilance of time, I had sort of five statements that I just pulled from actual, you know, news media and social media, because that's what's being pushed and that's what people are consuming. And so I would love sort of like the devil's advocate if I say this, what's Dr. P's food for thought on that? So I'll just maybe pick two or the five or we'll see how the time goes. Um, but the first being that I've heard from from many and these are these are all pulled recently, but um, so yes, there are unknowns with the vaccine. So I'm, I'm, you know, people are telling me, you know, and the, some of the professionals are saying, yes, I get that there are uncertainties and unknowns with the vaccine, but we do know what COVID-19 can do. We've seen it. So it therefore, the deduction is the benefits outweigh the risks. What do you yeah, say? Again, that's assuming that the injection is not 
creating COVID-19 either. And that's assuming that we're completely ignoring the fact that the symptoms of COVID-19 are also treatable successfully. And that the symptoms of COVID-19 are not caused by a virus. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that that's absolutely valid and valuable information for people to hear. Um, here's another one. There is no way the vaccine impacts fertility because mRNA does not interact with DNA. Okay, so that is a nice grand theoretical statement, but show me the science that this injection is consistent with that conclusion. Because some have actually shown that because of the, the uh, presence of reverse transcriptase, that the mRNA can actually reverse into DNA in the process of what happens when the mRNA is injected. Um, give me the study that demonstrates the injection of messenger RNA and compare it to our own produced mRNA for other things and parallel demonstrate what happens because they're not the same. Messenger RNA injected into the body around a lipid nanoparticle and a polyethylene glycol is not the same as messenger RNA that we're manufacturing. And so if you're right, show me you're right based on the injection of messenger RNA. The other thing about this regarding fertility in January of 2021, a scientist in Europe came out with an article very, very concerned that the uh, COVID-19 injection may increase, uh, may increase infertility rates. And his reasoning was that there's an element of the genetic material of the spike protein that is similar to the elements of the genetic material of some of the proteins in the placenta. Experts from around the world said the following. Oh, the amount of similarity of genetic material between the spike protein and the placental proteins is so small, it really doesn't matter. Therefore, there is no concern about infertility. And that's how the experts said the theory about the messenger RNA spike protein leading to infertility is false. But they didn't demonstrate any science behind it, Claudia. They just conjectured that because the amount of genetic material is so small in comparison, there shouldn't be a problem. Well, but there still could be molecular mimicry and cross-reactivity. Let's see the study. Now, we have reports from fertility clinics around the United States of men and women who've gone in, they've harvested sperm and harvested eggs. People have gotten the shot. They've gone to harvest more sperm and more eggs and the sperm and the eggs are dead. They're non-viable. And so show me how, so this is where the scientific method has to be utilized. Okay, people who got the shot are now demonstrating non-viable eggs and sperm. 
And there's a pattern here. Question, is the injection in any way affecting sperm and eggs in such a way that it's killing it? Let's do the study, right? Because we're seeing a pattern. Plus we're seeing almost a 400%, if not higher reporting rate of miscarriages in women who have been around others who've gotten the shot. Okay, so now tell me there's no association with infertility. Prove it, prove it. One simple statement, oh, messenger RNA doesn't convert to DNA. Okay, but is that true in the shot? Mm -hmm. And now if we're seeing a pattern of people having non-viable sperm and eggs, and we're seeing women lose their babies, should we rethink this? Mm -hmm. Rather than take the papal ring and just say, well, the authority Mm -hmm. said it, therefore it is. All right, I'll give you one more. Why are some countries overseas reporting most hospitalizations being in the vaccinated, while the U.S. is reporting a vast majority of the hospitalizations being attributable to the unvaccinated? The U.S. is the lie that unvaccinated people are responsible for causing all of the outbreak and that most of the illnesses are being seen in people who are not vaccinated. There's no data to support that. And if there are, show it to us, show it to us. Because most doctors in the hospitals are not documenting that people are getting the shot. In fact, the CDC stopped counting breakthrough cases. They stopped counting people who got the shot who were getting sick. with COVID. So our medical system is dying. It is failing. It has failed us. And it is on its way out. I mean, I don't know how after the truth comes out, people are going to be able to trust doctors who have taken on the Kool-Aid ever again. Because this, this is insane what's happening. And uh, if people don't like what I'm saying, great, show me I'm wrong. Show me, prove to me that what I've said is incorrect. Don't give me your opinion, because I haven't given my opinion. I've just reported what I've been researching and observing. That's why I really appreciate this conversation is because it's not that you're not open to questions from the other side. Um, It's just, yeah, why can't we have this gray area? I know we're running out of time. What I would love to know, I know Novavax is potentially on its way in. What are your thoughts on that option if it does become, and I know we, you know, there's, it's still going to be a lot of unknowns, but um, the technology utilizes is more similar to what we have known in the past. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Well, again, this isn't a virus. This is a spike protein that's not specific to a virus. And if we're gonna cause antibodies against a spike protein with chemicals in the shot that are unknown in their safety profiles, short and or long-term, and then we're gonna produce antibodies against this spike protein that cross-reacts with human tissue. And we're not even giving a shot against a virus, there's a problem. 
I really appreciate this conversation, Dr. Polevsky. You know, I, for one, am, am somebody who wants to just ask more questions. And so I appreciate your willingness to allow questions to be asked, even in a devil's advocate way, and for your willingness to be open to the other side and saying, you know, I'm, I'm open to that to just, you know, sure. show me show me how and why. I would love for you to share, for those who are still with us and enjoyed the conversation, I would love for you to share how they can learn more about the work that you do and more about some of the other media outlets that you've been on. So uh, my website is drdrpalevsky.com. You can also find me at northportwellnesscenter.com. I have a Telegram page, Dr. Pilevsky, D-R-P-A-L-E-V-S-K-Y. I have an Instagram page, drdr.pilevsky. Uh, on my website, you'll find uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews and newsletters that I've done. Uh, every Thursday night, I do a podcast with uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny called Critically Thinking with Dr. T and Dr. P. And once a month, we do a podcast with the five docs, me, Dr. Tenpenny, Dr. Christiane Northrup, Dr. Carrie Madday, and Dr. Lee Merritt. Um, you can find information about me at MAM, M-A-M-M.org, and the work that I'm doing with them. Uh, I, again, I think I have a bit shoot, Odyssey, MeWe. Uh, there are uh, things all over the place that I'm doing. Lots of really great content. I um, just did a search, Dr. Polevsky, and, and Apple Podcasts, and you, and endless goodness that I've I've been listening to. So I really appreciate I appreciate your willingness to be vocal in a space that isn't necessarily open to that. So I, I appreciate it because it allows us to have these conversations um, with some backing to it and allowing others to also feel validated because I have received countless people reaching out to me because I'm the only one who will listen to them. They're like, I, you know, my roommate moved out because I won't get vaccinated. And my friend doesn't want to, you know, allow me at their house or, you know, what do I do about college requiring the vaccination? So it's a conversation that is so desperately needed. And this gray space needs to be um, where we're spending more of our time. So thank Great. you so much again. Thank you, Claudia. Yeah. A huge thank you to Dr. Polevsky for coming on today, sharing his insights and his valuable time. I truly appreciate your ability and willingness to listen and his willingness to share what he has studied, researched, and now knows. And also what we still don't know. I think that's just as important. Really my goal here is to open a conversation, keep a conversation going, and really, allow for a more informed consent for those who wish to get the vaccine, which I am not pro or anti-vaccine, honestly. I am pro-information. And at this point, I think there's still a lot of information that's not known. And so moving forward with whatever decision you make in an informed way is, in my opinion, the best approach. So I hope that this has been helpful in helping you mind your wellness. I would love to hear feedback. If you would like me to interview somebody specific on this topic, please feel free to send them my way. And I look forward to seeing you here again next week.